listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at federal efforts to solve Canada's housing crisis. How do we fix a problem when we aren't building enough homes, yet are inviting a record number of immigrants to Canada? Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser joins us. Plus, we continue with our series, The Next Million. Today, we look at energy in Metro Vancouver, with sites he expect to be the last large-scale hydroelectric project to be built in B.C. How will we power a region that will grow by another million people by 2050? And when it comes to wildfires, flooding, landslides, tsunamis and earthquakes, what's the safest city in BC to avoid Mother Nature? You won't believe what Metro Vancouver City came out on top. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's begin by talking about housing. This week, the federal government announced a variety of programs to address our nation's housing challenges. Critics have called the federal effort barely a drop in the bucket when it comes to meeting the needs for more housing in our country. CMHC has said Canada needs to build 3.5 million new homes by 2030. Uh, That is nationally. Joining me now to discuss the issue is the man in the centre of this conversation. Sean Fraser is the Federal Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and uh, Communities. He joins us now. Mr. Fraser, Thank you for uh, speaking to us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Walk me through uh, some of this, some of the uh, announcement uh, that some of the actions that uh, your government has talked about in regards to the fall economics uh, uh, economic statement. How much of an impact do you think um, the announcement around housing will have in Canada? Uh, my view is that it's going to have a significant impact. Uh, we, of course, previously announced a suite of measures, including the Uh, elimination of the GST on uh, new apartments that are being constructed in Canada and continue to benefit from programs that were previously announced that are funding projects uh, over the past few years to build more homes. Uh, But specifically, with the recent fall economic statement, we've got measures that are primarily uh, directed at building more supply in the market. In particular, a $15 billion recapitalization of our low-cost financing program, the Apartment Construction Loan Program, is going to benefit by uh, building uh, tens of thousands of units across Canada. Uh, In addition, uh, direct support for affordable housing through a new $1 billion fund and co-ops housing supports to the tune of $300 million uh, is really going to help uh, get uh, housing built across the country. In addition to these measures, we're uh, supporting some provincial efforts, including in B.C., Uh, when it comes to cracking down on short-term rentals by changing the tax treatment for those kinds of properties and are continuing to put measures in place that support people who are dealing with a higher cost of borrowing when they seek to renew their mortgages through the establishment of a a mortgage charter. There's a number of measures uh, that we've advanced recently that help build on our previous uh, efforts to get more homes built in every corner of this country. Uh, Minister, one of the challenges, of course, we have a robust immigration system as well. Many people moving to Canada. We are a country of immigrants. Uh, But the numbers have been quite significant. We're going to be hitting half a million by 2025 and 2026. Add to that international students, temporary foreign workers. Uh, We are still going to have a shortage of housing simply because of a very robust immigration system as well. Has there been any talk of reducing immigration, even temporary foreign workers, uh, uh, international students, because we are still not as a country, federally, provincially, and municipally, not building enough housing to deal with the demand? Uh, My view is that we have to be uh, very careful to protect one of Canada's most competitive uh, economic advantages, uh, which is the fact that we are a uh, beacon for skilled newcomers from around the world who wish to work in Canada. The permanent residency numbers uh, do not give me concern because 
Many of the people who come are already here. And the economic benefit uh, of welcoming uh, significant numbers of new permanent residents is enormous for Canada. There are some challenges when it comes to the temporary programs you mentioned, and particularly the international student program and the temporary foreign worker programs. Now, let me just say, international students and workers who come temporarily also provide immeasurable benefits to Canada. In addition to the massive contribution to our GDP, in many instances, we're dealing with a pipeline of talented people who will call Canada home permanently one day and become Canadian citizens. But we have seen that uh, different organizations and institutions are uh, ramping up their desire to bring people through these programs. You look at the international student program in particular, I have concerns about some private colleges, and they're not all the same, by the way, Mm -hmm. who I believe are exploiting the program for their personal financial gain rather than for the benefit of the communities in which they're situated. We are moving forward with a trusted partner model that will provide preferential access to study permits for institutions that have a history of treating students well, and who including, uh, support them, including by providing housing for the student body that they support. There is more we can do to make sure institutions have access to the program if they provide these kinds of supports, but we also must work with provincial governments who make the decisions about which institutions qualify for that particular program. Mm-hmm. The reason I ask that question is, you know, you could look at different stats. Uh, uh, CMHC says we need to build 3.5 million more homes by 2030. Uh, Royal Bank is saying we need to build about 800,000 homes per year. We're averaging, I think, around 220 to 240,000, depending on what study you look at. That still leaves us a short every single year amount of houses that need to be built for the amount of people coming in. Uh, I mean, how do we fix that, whether it's 250,000 people who may not have homes based on these numbers? How do we build to the point where we are able to house people uh, when rents are going up significantly? There's still a shortfall of housing every single year with new newcomers coming in, natural gain in our population as well. How do we deal with that, that, that portion that is still not being addressed? We still have more people coming here compared to the houses and housing that we're building every single year. Uh, I understand the uh, the argument, and I think if we're going to talk about how we build the supply that we need, and that estimate by CMHC, by the way, uh, made the assumption that we would continue to increase our immigration levels along the current trajectory and level off in the way that, that the numbers presented in the recent immigration levels plan, in fact, has chosen to do. Um, but to increase the pace of building, there's specific things we need to do. Mm-hmm. We need to make the math work for builders by removing taxes like the GST, by providing low-cost financing, including through the program that announced $655 million of, uh, worth of loans in British Columbia just last week to build almost 2,000 new units. And we need to continue to find ways to leverage federal land and other public lands held by different levels of government to reduce the cost of building. In addition, we have to continue to invest in affordable housing by making sure that low-income families have a place that they can afford to live. And we also need to change the way that cities build homes by incentivizing municipal reforms that it can systemically produce more housing, which is what we're doing through the Housing Accelerator Fund. After we clear some of those obstacles, we will need to increase the productive capacity of the Canadian workforce by investing in skills training and development, by targeting immigration programs that welcome people who have the skills that we need through direct uh, uh, policies that are aimed at selecting those workers specifically, and by making investments that are going to help us build more homes and factories by embracing technology uh, along uh, modular panelization, mass timber, and 3D printing lines to allow us to actually produce a number of homes once we sort out some of the municipal zoning reform and financial supports that we can put in place to incentivize building. 
There's no silver bullet, but if we attack each of these smaller constituent problems behind the uh, housing productivity, we can grow the productive capacity of the Canadian economy to produce the homes that we need to support a population that continues to grow. Now, uh, within your comments, you said you, you know, the government has removed the GST uh, to further uh, push for greater rental housing being built. But here in uh, Metro Vancouver, the regional government here um, has introduced or increased development cost charges. Essentially, their argument being that growth must pay for growth, uh, i.e., sewer pipes and everything else that the regional government is, is responsible for. Um, there have been concerns by the federal government because of that, because those costs have gone up significantly. How do you get around you as a government, a federal government, offering GST rebates, yet all of those savings are then eaten up and then some by uh, these development cost charges uh, increasing? How do we fix that problem? So... Uh, there's a couple of key points to understand in response. I, I do have concerns when I see the magnitude of the proposed increase that uh, uh, Metroban has now adopted. Um, in fact, we are working towards uh, deals uh, through the Housing Accelerator Fund with some of the uh, constituent municipalities within the Metroban board. Um, I find it challenging when you're dealing with uh, a, a rise in the cost of building to assume that it won't impact the number of homes that can be built. There is a role for development cost charges to play, but when you see a significant increase, it can eat away at some of those policies, uh, such as the GST that we put in place to reduce the cost of building. Now, we are also dealing with some of Canada's leaders when it comes to home building that uh, exist within the metro van region. Um, We're going to work with those communities to develop plans that will allow them to demonstrate they can continue to hit the uh, benchmarks that they've committed to before we conclude agreements that we're working on now. But in addition, I should point out as well, there's recent changes made to legislation in British Columbia that draws a clearer frame around both development and amenities that will prevent the, uh, uh, the, the overall cost of building from going up for things that are not necessarily needed to actually build more properties. My own view is that when uh, new people move into a community, new workers come to a community, they contribute their skills, their energy, and uh, build a vibrant and dynamic communities, and that everyone benefits from that. So to assume that uh, uh, new growth uh, should pay for new growth exclusively ignores the value that uh, new construction and new families moving to a community provide to the people who already live there as well. So if the regional government sticks to its guns and saying, look, we're going to continue with these DCC changes, DCC development cost charges, uh, does that mean essentially the GST uh, program that you're offering in regards to limiting GST for rentals being built, that Vancouver just will not be part of the federal government's uh, program at the end of the day because the regional government sticks with this. I'm going to assume there's going to be no dollars available uh, for the region when it comes to removing GST on purpose-built rentals. So the GST measure, by definition, as a federal tax policy, must apply equally in every part of the country. And it will still have an impact to uh, allow more homes to be built, because if the development cost charges go ahead, um, uh, the impact of removing the GST would make the problem worse, which is something we want to avoid doing. So the separate from the uh, policy to remove the GST for new apartments, we're engaged in conversations with several metro van municipalities about direct financial support to implement new kinds of systemic reforms to build more homes through the Housing Accelerator Fund. We have uh, uh, been discussing how we can overcome some of the challenges presented through the development cost charges 
And most recently, we've been in touch with the Metrovan uh, board representatives who indicate a willingness to look at other measures that they can put in place to ensure that development cost charges don't impact the pace of construction and to look at what other supports may be put in place so the construction of purpose-built rentals is not diminished as a result of policies they've adopted. There is more work to do, in my opinion, but I find we can overcome challenges by working together, by taking meetings, by uh, having our teams work closely with one another, and to pick up the phone once in a while uh, to identify paths forward. My desire is not to have uh, a, a spat with any one uh, city in Canada. It's to build more homes in every city in Canada. And I'm uh, confident that we're going to be able to work with the metro van uh, municipalities to continue to support home construction there. And uh, my, my sense is that's something that those municipalities would like to see as well. Minister, my final question to you. I was reading the paper the other day, and I believe it was the Ontario Premier, uh, Doug Ford, who con- concerned about um, a jurisdictional uh, overreach. And we have the same problem here between provincial and municipal as well. But it, uh, in this case, uh, Premier Ford was complaining about the federal government dealing directly with municipalities. Uh, do you still think that's the way to go? Uh, do you worry that the, that may irk the provincial government and saying, look, we should be part of this conversation. You shouldn't be going around us dealing with specific municipalities. How do you, how do you answer that? Uh, by continuing to work with municipalities to help them build more homes. If uh, provincial governments have concerns, uh, they can implement some of the reforms we're incentivizing through the powers that they have already. Uh, I I find it difficult to accept from Premier Ford uh, that we should not fund the cities that Ontario has not been funding or, or changing the rules for. Um, To the extent we can also work collaboratively with provincial governments, I think it's incumbent upon us to do that. But the Housing Accelerator Fund that motivated those comments is demonstrating that it's working. We're changing the way that cities build homes in Canada by putting federal funding on the table to help cut red tape, uh, implement permitting reforms to issue permits more quickly, and to increase the ambition to get more homes built by allowing more density near transit, near post-secondary institutions, near job opportunities, and near key services. Uh, When a program is working in the middle of a crisis, it would be a grave mistake to take your foot off the gas pedal at a time when you're having real progress that's showing results in communities across the country. So I'm going to continue to work directly with cities who are demonstrating the level of ambition that will get more homes built. And if the provincial governments would like to join us, I would more than welcome their participation. And I should say in particular, British Columbia has been an excellent partner. The work that they're doing to get more homes built aligns perfectly with the ambition of the federal government, and we're going to continue to do what we can to adopt the kinds of reforms we're seeing in B.C., in other provinces and community. And if it means we have to work directly with cities, uh, that's okay with me. Minister Fraser, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, joining me now is Jerry Mayor Judson, of course, our show contributor. And today we want to talk a little bit about a pretty amazing um, individual who, who, to my understanding, just graduated uh, nursing school? Absolutely. Just graduated with his PhD in nursing. Wow. So he is, yeah, a philosophy doctor of nursing. Actually, the graduations were going between the 22nd and the 24th, just this week. Wow. He's gotten his PhD. His name is Scott Ramsey, mm-hmm. um, his PhD from UBC. He's a registered nurse, and he was working at that for a while. He was getting his master's and then had a kind of a 
an aha moment, I guess. And it's like, I'm going to go and get my PhD in this because before he was a registered nurse, he was pretty high level in youth hockey. Um, but, and he had, you know, aspirations of playing in the NHL, but unfortunately, of course, it's a problem in hockey is there were a lot of head injuries mm-hmm. consecutively one after the other. And, and he was no longer able to pursue that. So now he is helping other youth in hockey and other in sports in general, not, uh, not suffer the same fate. So uh, I asked him today about the research and advocacy that he's done for young athletes, plus why he was moved to pursue such a high level of study in nursing. I had originally started my master's while I was working in the emergency department, or I had made that decision. And I was seeing kids come in with concussion who had little to no education. That spikes my interest. Like, What are the gaps that exist? And is there something that we can do about it? And so during that time, I transitioned over to to the clinic from doing shift work. And so being in outpatient neurology, we got referred the more complex concussion. And we end up seeing those kids months after they've been diagnosed. And after about the sixth one I talked to who didn't have a follow-up visit, I'm like, okay, there's a major gap here in terms of the care that we're providing to these kids, the health services that are available in the province. And then so I did a little bit of a deep dive and Cole called my now supervisor at, uh, at UBC and we had a conversation and she said, why aren't you doing your PhD? And I said, well, no one, no one ever told me that this would be a, an option to do. And she's like, oh, I think you have a a great project. You have personal <laughs> experience in in that arena as well with in terms of, you know, brain injury and, and concussions in your life. Yeah, yeah, I've had uh I've had five concussions all from playing uh high level ice hockey as a result of my second, third and fourth ones being cumulative in such a short amount of time, I ended up getting post concussion syndrome and so probably post-concussion syndrome was nine months the concussions were about two months so all we're talking about like years worth of of concussion stuff super super tough having lived through it but I think that personal experience is what makes me so passionate about the the research that I get to do it really fuels me like I, I started this whole endeavor with just wanting to help one kid not have to go through the same thing that I went through and um, uh, able to touch many more lives now I feel just by the experience that I've had and and will continue to pursue in the future. That's amazing. Tell me about like the the research and advocacy work for for kids with concussions that you're doing. Oh it's probably been what it's been close to a decade now of uh, doing research clinical work and um volunteering in the community, being obviously on on research studies. So looked at the policy change of disallowing body checking during my undergrad, my dissertation work done around follow-up visits and looked at um, uh, education and healthcare professionals as well in the research arena. And then obviously my clinical work, working at BC Children's, do a lot of assessment, intervention education for children and youth and their families, and then primary care providers around the province as well. And then volunteering, I've done baseline testing for hundreds and hundreds of kids who play sports. I've coached youth hockey for, for over a decade and I'm usually the concussion person. So I've done lots of, lots of work around youth sports in, in terms of providing direct care for kids in the, the moments of getting acute concussion and, and then making sure that they return to sport in an appropriate manner. That's huge. And then I guess in that decade, you've probably seen some changes in, in the sport, um, but like in, in terms of protecting kids from getting concussions and post, I mean, not just kids, mm-hmm. but grown, grown people as well. But what still needs to change 
in hockey in terms of how we treat concussions, how we address it, how we prevent them? I would speak more to like sport in general. I think we need to do a better job of protecting kids in, the, in their brains. I think we put them, especially as adults, right? We understand there's inherent risks in everything that we do, but as children, they don't. And so we need to do a better job of protecting them across all sports, not just hockey. But I think hockey is a really good example because we've done research and there's evidence to show that policy change can reduce injuries and concussion. And so, for instance, we've moved hitting up to the U15 age. Well, I think that needs to go a step further. I think we need to, to take hitting out of minor hockey altogether and not put those kids at risk while her brain's still developing. And further to that, too, I would even take it a step further. You know, 16, 17-year-olds who play junior hockey, uh, I think we should take fighting out of junior hockey altogether. There's no fighting in college hockey, and it's a great product, and I, I think it would translate well over to, to junior hockey. And if, if professionals want to decide that that's the inherent risk they want to take by participating in something like that, then, then so be it. But um, I think there's um, a lot of work left to be done to, uh, to make sure that we protect kids appropriately. You know, all the comments uh, there uh, by Scott are entirely reasonable, uh, but I'm sure there's going to be still folks who are going to push back, you know, even fighting in junior hockey. Um, And junior hockey is a big business, right? And not that people go for fighting, but there's those who are going to say it's still part of the culture. You can't, you know, get rid of all of it. Um, But I would think with all this body of work that, you know, whether Scott's done and others have done, the issue of concussions... Uh, is going to continue. And somewhere along the way, one would argue, there is a liability issue, whether it's youth sports, junior hockey, or the NHL at the end of the day. I totally agree. I actually think it's so interesting that 15, 17, 15, 16, 17-year-olds in youth hockey they're still fighting, but there's no fighting before and there's no fighting in higher level hockey, like in, in college hockey as well. So I think it's a weird little pocket where these kids can still fight each other and then still potentially give each other traumatic brain injuries. But it's interesting too. I mean, the human brain isn't done developing until you're 25. And that's mm-hmm. when all like these youths are undertaking brain damage is before that point in time. And uh, it's just, I think maybe I'm I'm a little namby pammy and I'm like, I think that there should be no fighting in sports ever and everyone should protect their brains. But I'm, on, I'm way well, on the other end. Well, I will give uh, you know i'll say this about hockey it's a lot better today than yes. it was 20 oh, years ago is right? it ever so, and thank goodness for that uh you know it's not like uh, it's all bad in hockey but i think it, it's the research and the body of work that at the end ultimately that's gonna uh, that's gonna change things in hockey not 100%. just hockey but look at football too like my son wanted to play and my wife and i just said no you play enough mm-hmm. sports uh studies matter as well and so we use that as an argument i like in the back Protect of our, your head in the back of our mind and and you know it's the, the school there in tuas has got a great uh, football program and the parents are great and the coaches are great but you know on the back of your mind you're still thinking that as a parent right totally and and one could argue they got helmets the pads they're going to be safer but football hasn't had the perfect record either right Most certainly no absolutely thank you jerry thank you that's our jerry mayor judson as we continue with our series, The Next Million, the series airs every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people, and it's expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How do we accommodate these new residents, and how do we work, live, and play in a region with a million more people? Today, we're going to look at energy. Now, energy powers Metro Vancouver's economy and its citizens' daily lives, but almost three-quarters of the energy used in the city to heat and cool homes 
homes, power vehicles, run buildings and operate industry comes from fossil fuels, primarily gasoline, diesel and natural gas. And it's these fossil fuels that are responsible for most of Metro Vancouver's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the regional government's goal is to have Metro Vancouver run 100% on clean energy by 2050 to achieve the target of emission-free energy and eliminate 90% of the region's overall emissions. The regions need to shift away from fossil fuels to clean electricity, low-carbon hydrogen, and biofuels. And of course, that transition is a, is part of the challenge that we are all seeing uh, before us today. Joining me now to talk a little bit about powering Metro Vancouver in 2050 and the rest of the province as well is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, and Vaughn Palmer, the Vancouver Sun's uh, political columnist. Keith, Vaughn, welcome. Um, good to talk to you again, Jazz. Hi, good. Keith. Yeah, good chat with both of you. I know both of you follow the energy file very closely, whether it's uh, hydro, LNG, oil pipeline. So I think you'd be both uh, be, be able to provide us a bit of a political lens to all of this as well. Vaughn, let me start with you first and foremost. Is Site C, and we're not complete Site C, Site C is not complete yet, but do you see it as the last major hydroelectric project in BC to be built in the future? I mean, these projects are expensive, but is this the last one we'll probably build in this province? Yeah, I think. Everybody sort of accepts that. There are other possibilities. Uh, you go back through the history record. At one point, they were talking about damming the Fraser River, uh, the Stikine, the Iskut. Uh, there are other there's there's there are other projects that might happen. For example, you could do some expansion on the existing uh, hydroelectric network on the Columbia River or the Peace. But really, practically. This is it. This is the last big dam. And, you know, (laughs) it's gone through an interesting lifetime in our political lives, uh, Jazz, because I remember when the, you know, the government of the day was in opposition, they argued it wasn't even needed. Now they can hardly wait for the electricity to start flowing in 2024 and 2025. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Keith, uh, I believe once Site C is up, as Vaughn says, I think it's about 450,000 homes that it can power, but we're growing significantly. Uh, I was looking at some numbers today. Zero emission vehicles represent about 18% of new light duty passenger vehicles sold in BC in 2022. We've gone from about 5,000 electric vehicles in 2016 in this province to more than 100,000 today. That's a 1,900% increase in the past six years. Uh, where do we go from here? If Site C is the last hydroelectric dam, where, where, where should we be looking? What's next? Well, Hydro has a, is going to put out a call for more electricity uh, in the spring for 3,000 gigawatt hours, which would uh, electrify 270,000 homes. So right now, even with Site C online, Hydro is expected to be in an energy deficit by the year 2030 unless they can find more power. So Rick McCandless, who's a former uh, Assistant Deputy Minister over here in Victoria, who has intervener status at the Utilities Commission, so he's an expert on these types of things, just published a paper. He's got his hands on some Hydro... Uh, documents that suggest this power call is going to be almost exclusively for wind farms, wind power, uh, not nothing to do with hydro. Uh, this is going to be wind. It's going to be um, expensive. He estimates five to five to eight billion dollars uh, to build these wind turbines, largely in the northeast part of BC. Uh, if you recall, the Campbell government last power call 15 years ago focused on ru- small run of river projects, small hydro projects. But this one is going to be wind, and it's also going to be done in partnership with First Nations. Um, but we'll see if that can actually materialize. The wind, the wind farm uh, industry in Europe has sort of cratered from time to time the last few years. It seems to be getting back on its feet, but it's had enormous problems on the capital side. Um, and then you've got 
uh, things like local opposition. Washington State, just across the border in Washington State, there's a wind farm down there that's quite large because mm-hmm. Washington's also trying to electrify their state. It's met tremendous opposition from the local residents because wind farms are these big, ugly, noisy things. Uh, that can blight a landscape. So this is no easy fix here, but uh, make no mistake, the need for more electricity is paramount. And, and Vaughn's right, I agree with him. No more hydro, uh, big hydro uh, dams. They're going to have to go wind and probably to a lesser degree solar. Mm-hmm. Um, Vaughn, I recall having the mayor of uh, Nanaimo, Leonard Krogh, uh, on the show a few months ago, and uh, he was almost apologetic. I think their council had banned uh, future natural gas expansion in their community. Uh, and he was actually very very practical and going, look, this is not going away anytime soon. And, you know, City Hall banning natural gas in the future is, is kind of silly. But, you know, he, he went along with it. He was, he was not part of the majority. Uh, in the Metro Vancouver region, we're having the same conversation. Uh, Malcolm Brody was on here. Fortis is trying to fight that. Um, do you see a natural gas ban coming uh, in, in, in some of our larger uh, communities like Metro Vancouver, Victoria, natural ca- the capital region? I mean, is this coming in your mind? Well, I, I can talk about it. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it's practical because you know the the what we just talked about no more hydro. Uh, yes, a scramble for wind farms and solar. Maybe some geothermal here. Mm-hmm. British Columbians are never going to let the idea of nuclear power cross their mind, so that's out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're going to go where are you getting all the electricity? Jazz, we had a window into the thinking inside the government today with a leaked memo from the energy minister. And what she says in there, Josie Osborne, is we got a problem, which is there is more demands already on BC Hydro than, than are manageable for their electricity. Because electric vehicles, uh, moving industry away from natural gas to electricity, the new uh, lithium battery plant that they're talking about in Maple Ridge, they want to electrify it. Hydrogen plants in the Northeast, they want to electrify them. Second phase of LNG in Kitimat, they want to electrify it. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times, Jazz, they've already committed the power from Site C, but my guess is probably three or four times over already. So, you know, any plan you have... Uh, whether it's a new industry or converting an old one or converting a house, where's the electricity going to come from? Uh, I think we are up against a huge problem of way too many demands for the electricity than we're going to be able to generate, at least in the short to medium term. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry and Vancouver Sun's political columnist, uh, columnist uh, Vaughn Palmer. We're talking about the next million. In this case, we're looking at powering Metro Vancouver. Where will our energy come from? Clean energy at the end of the day. Uh, let's go to our open line. Uh, let's go to uh, Gurdip and Suri. Hi, Gurdip. Hi, Jazz, and uh, hello to Keith and Vaughn. You know, it's a great commentary and really enjoy your show. You know, uh, just uh, looking at uh, the proposed uh, density increases uh, in terms of multiplexes and upzoning across the province, uh, you know, already right now, I think, you know, many municipalities and privately, you know, hydro is, is, is uh, you know, thinking that, you know, it's going to be an issue providing the power for, you know, all those units on these single-family lots. So uh, my question is, what is preventing the government from, you know, amending the BC Building Code 
to make it mandatory to put solar panels on every single building, whether it's residential, industrial, or commercial. Gradeep, thank you for your call. Keith, uh, I mean, uh, what do you think of that? What if we did make, you know, every new home that's built or new building put up, you know, it's mandatory, you have to have solar on there? Well, solar works in some communities much better than it does in others. BC's, uh, you know, much of us is a dense rainforest where the sun isn't out a lot. Uh, you know, maybe it works better in White Rock, which is sort of part of the Sun Belt or here in South Vancouver Island. But I don't think you're going to see necessarily the North Shore in the shadow of the of the North Shore Mountains, which gets a disproportionate high number of rains and cloudy days that necessarily have solar work to the same efficiency. But make no mistake, I think things like the code question of requiring uh, energy-related measures is going to be part of the the new normal going forward. It might not happen next year or the year after, but this is an ongoing challenge where the electricity issue, the energy issue, is not going to be solved in 10 years. It's a constantly evolving file now, and it's uh, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more of a challenge. So creative solutions have to be be found. So, yeah, don't discount this, but I don't think it's uh, the one-size-fits-all type of uh, response. Vaughn, uh, Gurdip has raised a very good issue, which mm-hmm. is the expansion, the density that we're talking about adding, mm-hmm. and everybody having electrical vehicles and wanting to charge them at home and getting off natural gas and going to electrical heat is going to put enormous strain on the residential grid, local transmission lines, mm-hmm. carrying capacity in condominium buildings. And I think you are going to have to have, you're have to going to have to do all of that. You're going to have to upgrade the grid. You're going to have to put in a lot more carrying capacity. Uh, You're going to have to encourage as much solar uh, as you can. Uh, As I said, I just think you're going to have to do all of it because the amount of stress on the local systems from just everybody getting an electric car is going to be enormous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go to uh, Josh in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. Hey, Jazz. I I hate to be pessimistic, but, you know, in my 30-something year lifetime, I've seen pretty much no change, really. I mean, our cars are better on fuel now. But as far as, like, power generation is concerned here, you know, there was a little bit of talk about getting energy from food waste, which is super cool, but really doesn't seem like they've done anything. So I just feel like to to think that in the next 20 years, all of these targets are going to be accomplished and we're going to be banning natural gas and all these things, like, their heads are in the clouds. And ultimately, I feel like it may just lead to continuous political shift you know the party who says okay we're not going to do that i think people will start just leaning that way and it doesn't seem like anything really significant is ever going to get done here josh thank you for your call i think you probably you raised a really good point because in regards to a party thinking differently yesterday the bc conservatives did just that in regards to their environmental policy i think it's a good 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 uh, uh good point to talk a little bit about the other issue which is carbon tax now it doesn't specifically talk about any particular bit of energy it's about us making a shift away from fossil fuels. Vaughn, let me go to you. Um, you know, we've often talked about carbon tax and revenue neutrality, and it's there to change behavior. Your sense of things, I'd love to hear your sense of things when it comes to the carbon tax. Is Has it played out? Is it a question of us moving too quickly in regards to raising it every single year to the point where the public are tired? Or do you think we need to rethink the carbon tax compared to what when it, when it started in 2008 and where it's at today? There is a lot of fatigue out there, financial fatigue. I think it's fascinating what's happened with the carbon tax, Jazz. I would have said after, you know, the big showdown and uh, the 2009 election, uh, 
the liberals brought in a tax, the New Democrats opposed it, the New Democrats lost the election. It faded. I would have had it as a closed issue. British mm-hmm. Columbians, carbon taxes, British Columbians are fine with them. They're comfortable with them. It's going up in small increments. And instead, we have got a major political issue out of something that seemed to be dead politically, and I think it's going to be a major issue in the next provincial election. Mm -hmm. Uh, Public, and that's true across the country because of what's happened. I think we all recognize it's related to the way the cost of living has become such a big deal. Uh, Taxes have become a big deal, and an awful lot of people are going, why are we paying this carbon tax um, when we're paying more than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, Keith, I guess the core question with what Vaughn is saying is, is carbon tax actually changing behavior? And I, I'm not sure if the other side that supports it can fundamentally say, yes, it is, even though we are selling more EVs, even though uh, if you look at the U.S. sales, they're slowing down. They're actually still growing, but they're slowing down in regards to how fast that pace was, right? You, you know what a skeptic I am when it comes to meeting these EV targets. I just I just don't see it. I just don't think uh, the demand is going to be there because people just simply can't afford it, but we'll see. Uh, in terms of the carbon tax, I've been saying all along, and I totally agree with Vaughn, once the cost of living became an issue, front and center for people, the carbon tax turned into a different thing. And that's why you're seeing uh, parties of all stripes talking about modifying it or reducing it. Um, interesting, back to Josie Osborne's memo today, mm-hmm. uh, which she says were notes that she took from someone else uh, advising her, talked about potentially the need for uh, a, a rebate tied to the carbon tax and a potential freeze on hydro rates. And she acknowledged the government is thinking about this. David Eby on the weekend of the NDP convention doubled down on the carbon tax. And we're not, you know, this is an important part of our our uh, approach to fighting climate change. Today, the Minister acknowledged doing something to the carbon tax, not getting rid of it, maybe just not increasing it or, or increasing the rebates or freezing hydro rates is suddenly now officially on the table. That wasn't the case publicly, at least until today. Keith Vaughn, thank you for your time as always. All right, take it. Pleasure, Jazz. Bye, Keith. This is a fun segment. I uh, was looking forward to this interview uh, all day today. Uh, recently, I had a friend uh, who was thinking about buying a place in Palm Springs, and we were just talking. And one of the things for me as a caveat was, you know, there's water challenges in California. But what it, that conversation reminded me of the fact is that when we buy uh, a place wherever we live, you do have to take those types of things into consideration, particularly with uh, climate change. If you live in a floodplain, perhaps, or near the water, there's an issue there. Perhaps there's earthquake challenges. That's the nature of what we do. Uh, Recently, well, not recently, even today, I was reading an article uh, written by Alana Kelly. She's a journalist for Glacier Media. Uh, And the article looks at what's the safest place to avoid Mother Nature when you think about what we are up against these days, wildfires, flooding, landslides, tsunamis, and earthquakes. And it's a fabulous article. I I, uh, encourage you to check it out, Glacier Media, Google it. And it's a a fun read and gives you an idea of some of the things we have to now consider when we're buying buying homes or where we're living. So, Alana Kelly, who's a journalist with Glacier Media, she joins us now. Alana, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming by. I wanted to chat with you. So, um, how did you come about this article? Like, did, what was uh, when 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 you decided I'm going to do this? Uh, how did you get about doing that? You know, I didn't know if it was possible. I will say that, uh, and it, it, I didn't realize it was possible until I started interviewing the experts. So, mm-hmm. it came about from my experience covering these disasters that we've had in BC. And I had a conversation in my newsroom, and everyone was so divided. Mm-hmm. No one could agree on one spot. And you know, like all good stories, it starts with a. Dis- 
discussion. So、mm-hmm. I said, okay, if we're so divided, I wonder what the public thinks. So、mm-hmm. from there, I reached out to some very smart people that are much smarter than I am and、uh, asked them, based on their expertise,、mm-hmm. where would be the safest place. And, and then that's how this really came about. And like I said, I didn't know if we could find that one place. So experts in flooding, in earthquakes, all that.、Thing. Yes. So the individual specialties so a wildfire expert,、um, a seismologist, a hydrologist, a geologist, all very, very smart people who love this world. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> What's、well, interesting. So、uh, let's、uh, go through some of these、uh, lists. I'm very、yeah. interested. So,、uh, best places. To avoid wildfires. And when you、mm-hmm. think wildfires, you think of, first of all, just the dangers of those wildfires, but you think of smoke,、uh, you think of the damage on properties,、mm-hmm. especially in the Okanagan.、Uh, so, in regards to that particular segment,、mm-hmm. what kind of things did the experts tell you? Yeah, the experts said that the north is drying rapidly. So, when I was doing this, it was, that allowed me to kind of put an X, unfortunately, in the north because it was ruled out very quickly that that is a high danger area. So, the experts said heavily urbanized areas like Vancouver and Abbotsford、uh, were the top two choices,、um, that there wasn't a large fire risk. Now, it's important to note that there are always risks. Yeah. In all of these places, of course, there's going to be, but there is a lower risk in Vancouver and Abbotsford. So, the number one city to avoid、uh, wildfires is Vancouver. Yes.、Uh, number two uh, is uh, Abbotsford. Abbotsford. There you go. Yeah.、Uh, so, best places to avoid floods? Yes. So, we have Burnaby. And I believe it was Vancouver again. Yes, Burnaby's number one,、uh, Vancouver's number two. And, and the reasoning behind that generally?、Uh, it's, it had to do with steep slopes and bodies of water. So when we look at Burnaby, of course, there's areas that could flood, like any area. There are those you know, rivers or bodies of water that could flood. Flood, but、um, you know, the, the type of material and the location where the homes are in proportion to where those bodies of water are.、Mm-hmm. So, you know, where people are living in、uh, Burnaby and where people are living in Vancouver, the chances of them being impacted by that flood is lower where you would be living.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, did you,、uh, when you look at floodplains, did you look at just diking systems and stuff like that? Oh, the maps that I looked at. <laughs> I, I swear I dream of these maps now because I looked at so many of them.、Uh, maps upon maps upon maps. And one of the things that was really interesting in this, I'll call it an experiment, was that the maps are actually up to, the floodplain maps are actually up to individual municipalities to do. So some of them didn't even have their flood maps updated since 2011. And I did ask the province for you know, a, an updated map, and they said one is coming in 2024.、Mm. But the earliest ones we had were from 2011. Really? Yeah. This is everything we've seen in Abbotsford and Chilliwack. So they're updating them now. Yes. And it does take time, and I'll give them that much. But、yes. my God, that, that is interesting that many communities and our provincial government、uh, don't have an updated floodplain map. So let's go to the next issue,、mm-hmm. which is best places to avoid earthquakes. Yes. So Prince George and Kamloops,、uh, the expert told me that really the center of the province is the best place to be. He,、um, His name's、um, Dr. John Cassidy. He gave me the best quote. He explained that the West Coast is moving, the tectonic plates there are moving at the speed of our fingernails. Oh, okay. Closer to the lower mainland. And so I thought that was a really cool visual. And I was like, kind of gross because, like, looking at people's fingernails.、Yeah. But I was like, oh. So he said there's lots, obviously, of movement and the earthquake danger map. If you look at it, the area that's in red is all of Vancouver Island and really kind of that Vancouver coast area.、Uh-huh. 
But then as you wrap around, um, the earthquake or tsunami would kind of lose its power as it goes around those bodies of water. So places like Burnaby, the Pacific tsunami risk and earthquake isn't as severe, which also gets into bedrock, which I swear I've, the, the amount of times I've talked about bedrock and till and soil. So the, the material, right, that, that um, there has a big impact as well on the earthquake and the shape. If you're just joining us, uh, we are speaking to Alana Kelly. She's a journalist with Glacier Media. We've been talking about the safest places in BC to avoid uh, Mother Nature. Interesting article when you think about when you have to buy a piece of property or perhaps choose a community you want to live in. Sometimes the issues of climate change and some of the challenges that Mother Nature provides are part of that conversation. Uh, so I just want to let you know what we've discussed already, if you're just joining us, best places to avoid wildfires, if the best communities to live in is are Vancouver and Abbotsford. Uh, best places to avoid floods, number one is Burnaby, number two is Vancouver. Uh, best places to avoid earthquakes. Prince George is number one. Number two is Kamloops. I might add, you spoke to experts here. We're not just picking up the list. Yeah, this, this wasn't me. <laughs> no, it wasn't you. And then, of course, best places to avoid tsunamis. Broadly speaking, anything in the interior and, of course, higher ground. So yes. there's no specific community, that's for sure. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about, what were the experts telling you here in BC, best places to avoid landslides? The expert was really quick to answer this one, and it was Coquitlam. I will say he lives there, so something to note. <laughs> Uh, but he, you know, he said there's no steep slopes uh, and there's not a lot of gullies. And then the second choice was Hornby Island. So if you picture what Hornby Island looks like, kind of flat, but a lot of fire risk on Hornby, Hornby Island. So Okay. So mm-hmm. lands, but for landslides, you're, you, you're looking good. You got it. Okay. So we've gone through these sort of the broad topics here. Like, give us a drum roll here, uh, Leo, if you can. There you go. All right. I'm going to uh, let you announce, Elena, oh. the number one safest place in BC to live in is? Burnaby. Hey, there we go. Congratulations <laughs> to Burnaby. Uh, why Burnaby? Just because, I mean, it's on some of the lists already, but overall it's done well with, with all five of those. Yeah, so it's mostly on bedrock. It's away from steep slopes. It's away from water bodies. There's a low fire risk. And if there was a Pacific, Pacific tsunami, the risk is low. So it checks off a lot of those boxes. Uh, and I will say that the way we came to this was layering all those hazard maps, right? So putting on that fire map putting on that landslide map, the tsunami map, the earthquake map, all of the maps on top of each other. And this one had a lower risk. So it doesn't mean that that won't happen. Mm-hmm. It's just a lower risk because I'm sure people are listening to, to this and maybe are like, oh, well, what about Still Creek? Yes, that area has been known to flood. And yes, there is pockets that could have flooding. And they got a, a pipeline going through as well, right? Yeah, and a so refinery there, right? Low probability, high impact if that happened. And wh- how what would SFU be in that con- context with Burnaby Mountain? I'm very you got curious. it. So one of the experts had a really hard time with that area because it's steep. So for landslides, there could be that risk, but it's lower probability, right? So so things like that could happen, mm-hmm. less probability. Less probability. But yes. the safest community, broadly speaking, talking to the experts that you did, uh, overall is Burnaby. So I, it, it, would, it would be somewhere in the lower mainland, I would have guessed, but I'm not sure Burnaby would have been my first choice, but that's very interesting. Um, now, earthquake obviously is a big challenge here for the lower mainland. We're always preparing for, for the next one, a constant conversation. We get tremors here occasionally uh, as well. I'm curious, if you are in the lower mainland, did, did the experts tell you anything about, you know, being safe, like 
what is there a safer part of the lower mainland? Yeah, they always say higher ground, yeah. obviously, is kind of the rule of thumb. Um, but it, it's they kind of it was funny. The conversations I had with people were like, you know, we don't know when the big one's going to happen, but we know in the lower mainland, there's a 20 percent chance that it could happen, I think, in the next 50 years. I have to check my article, but I'm pretty sure that's what they told me. Mm-hmm. And that risk goes down the closer you get to like the interior. So okay. it's only like 10%, 10 to 5% if you're in the interior. So if you're someone who's like terrified of earthquakes, they also told me Manitoba. <laughs> so so I'm not, and again, I don't want people to the hear this and move. you there. <laughs> yeah. And, and this wasn't, the idea behind this wasn't no. for people to be like, oh, I need to move. Really, the whole point of this story was to create a conversation around how we can be more climate resilient in our communities, mm-hmm. right? And what we need to know about the risks in our communities and talk about it in kind of a fun, playful way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is there any safe place, do you think, in Metro Vancouver for, for an earthquake? Did they mention anything? So what we did talk about was, as I'm sure if you live in the lo- lower mainland, you're aware of, you know, Richmond and Delta, if there was supposed to be the big one, if that was to happen, what would happen to those areas? They would essentially be gone into the ocean. and then Liquefaction. Yeah. And, and, and the ground that they're on is very soft in that area. So those ones were quickly eliminated from the list. And, and depending on how large that earthquake would be, it would continue through the lower mainland. I see. So other parts of probably Surrey may be safer when regards to the earthquake. I don't know, but I'm just saying. Yeah. And then you have to factor in like the uh, Fraser River and everything with flooding with that, eh, with rising sea levels. There's so many factors. Yeah. What did you take away mostly from this yourself? Just writing it because there's so much research you get. Great conversations you get to have with experts. There's only so much you can put in an article. Uh, what's your takeaway? That these experts probably never want to hear from me again. No I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that there is risks everywhere you live in BC. We're so lucky to live in British Columbia. It's so beautiful, and a lot of us love to live here because of the mountains or the ocean. But there are these risks, and they're going to be everywhere. There's not one place you can live in BC without risk. We have them all, mm-hmm. all of them. So. To me, it's really choosing what risk you're comfortable and how you can prepare yourself. That was my takeaway from the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm curious, so you had a poll with your listeners yes. as well. What, what were most people who aren't experts, what, like what, what yes. kind of answers were you getting? This is my favorite part of the story. <laughs> so yeah. we had um, 25% of people picked Prince George. As the safest place to avoid Mother Nature yes, in the province. Which is so interesting, right, after yeah. what we've seen this summer. And uh, one of the things that we can do with a poll is see where people were voting from. Yeah. So that's my next next challenge is to see, you know, were people just voting for Prince George because they lived in Prince George? Yeah. Or did they genuinely think that it was the safest? And then in second place was Burnaby with 20% of the votes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you got real huge readership in Burnaby, but uh, they're pretty close. Yeah. That is really amazing. That is really amazing. Alana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.